Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bounties Then Blasters. I'm your host, Madison. And I'm your other host, Brad, and this is a Friends of the Force and Doing Talking crossover series covering all things under the Mandalorian mantle. Each week, we're hosting an in-depth discussion about the newest episode on Disney+. Plus. This week, we're talking about the final chapter, Chapter 8, Redemption, directed by Taika Waititi and written by Jon Favreau. And uh, right on the heels of this finale dropping on Disney+, Plus, we got an announcement from John Favreau about season two. Woo! So we didn't have to, you know, freak out and go, when is the next season coming? <laughs> it's coming fall of 2020. Yes. We just have a year to go. Amazing. And he also dropped it alongside a very disturbing picture of a half-naked Gamorrean. <laughs> Honestly, that Gamorrean is what I look like when I get up in the middle of the night and sneak to the fridge to grab snacks. <laughs> Let's just be real. Like, that's that's like what I look like. So I really related to it, honestly. I'm going to see that every time I close my eyes now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited about this Gamorrean because... One, does that mean we're going to be going back maybe to Tatooine to find our bu buddy Boba Fett? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. <laughs> but uh, it's good to see some familiar creatures apparently returning in the next season. Definitely some hot creatures at that. But Madison, what does this mean for Star Wars Celebration Anaheim? Are we getting that big Mando panel with the animatronic Baby Yoda coming out on stage? I think so. I think so. I think they're going to have another big panel teasing season two, which will be really exciting to, you know, finally get a trailer and stuff that they're probably going to drop. And please have a baby Yoda walk out onto the stage. <laughs> now, I know you're not going to celebration, but I will certainly try my best to FaceTime you into the room if they don't have a stream. <laughs> yes, please. Do. If I get into the room. But I feel like it's going to be so interesting this time around, because now with the unveiling of baby yoda the cats out of the bag and whereas last year or this year at chicago they couldn't do much about baby yoda obviously now we're gonna get like full-blown yoda baby yoda cosplay mando cosplay at this panel people i really hope like care they just come out with like a baby yoda like that would be so good <laughs> yeah i mean they even went so far as to literally cgi him out of the shots that he was in that they put in the trailers which Every time it popped up, like in episode two, like when there's the shot of him walking uh, and Baby Yoda's floating beside him, like they CGI'd that out. And I'm like, wow, they really went the distance to hide Baby Yoda from us. And I'm <laughs> proud of them for it. They did a yeah. great job. <laughs> they did. So I, I'm very excited. I will say, honestly, in an off movie year, that panel is probably going to be cream of the crop besides the Obi-Wan panel. I think Disney yeah. Plus is going to steal the show in Anaheim this year, next year. So has has Cassian been pushed back to after Kenobi? I think so, because I know Kenobi starts production next year, but Cassian hasn't started production. It's really strange, and I hate to say it, but I, I almost like I'm getting worried they're going to cancel the series for some reason. No. But I hope they don't. <laughs> All right. I, well, I think probably Kenobi is a higher priority for them, probably because of Ewan McGregor, whatever his schedule may be. I'm not really sure, but yeah, I hope makes we get all sense. Of them. Yeah, yeah. I get my three boys, you know. <laughs> All right. So let's jump in here and start talking about this episode because there's a lot to discuss. It was a very dense episode. So, Brad, why don't you go first? What was your kind of first impression of this episode? Well, let me say, Madison, you're going to have to stay with me, buddy, throughout this episode because it's, it's a long one. It's a good one. It's the longest <laughs> one of the season. So we got a lot to discuss. But this I would say this is the first episode of the series where we've actually been truly thrown into some sort of post cliffhanger ending. I know the first episode, we obviously had the reveal of, of baby Yoda, but in episode two, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like a 
immediately after like him there in the room picking up baby Yoda sort of continuation you know he had already been out about walking around this time though we're truly thrown right into the speeder bikes just as we left off and it felt like one seamless continuation of episode seven and I love that I love feeling like these high stakes I love how intense and fast-paced the music is and everything about this episode is just so well paced and especially with Taika Waititi's humor, just right off the bat, set the tone for this episode. I knew it was going to be something very funny, very emotional. I cried so many times. Nobody should cry that much before 7 a.m. on a Friday. Just saying. (laughs) But I did. And Ludwig's score, especially capping off all these emotional story beats, is just perfect. And I would say this is my favorite episode of the season. And I just felt all the emotion happening. I was very satisfied when it ended. And I was like, great, that's a great way to end the season. And then lo and behold, you hit me in the face with that crazy cliffhanger ending. Give me season two now. I want to know how that damn man got the Darksaber. But more on that later. Agreed. Yeah, this episode really sold me from the first scene on because I just love the humor about it that they leave us on this massive cliffhanger of all of our you know, faves are in imminent danger. But we're going to open this last episode with two random stormtroopers having a petty argument about (laughs) Baby Yoda. It's like they know we're anxious and we're like wanting to get back to the other characters and see what's going on. But they're just like milking it like, (laughs) no, we're just going to have them sitting here chilling, you know, having an argument and hitting Baby Yoda, which, oh, my gosh, (laughs) I I was about to just. I was about to explode. Yeah. I was like, "They okay, they need to die. Um, <laughs> Taika loves to make the audience feel that impatience. Like, he does that on yes. purpose. You know, he that's his favorite thing to do. Yeah, and that's what was so hilarious about it. I love that this episode, despite the urgency of it, didn't feel rushed in any way. It really took its time and gave us those slower-paced moments and those really great character moments without just, like, rushing through everything. It was very well balanced with those kind of moments and the action, which was absolutely incredible in this episode, like IG-11 riding in there on the speeder bike. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, it was amazing. And yeah, it just, it really drove home for me in this episode how invested I am in all of these characters. Like, I really genuinely care about all of them. And even though I knew Mando wasn't going to die, I was still like genuinely concerned and like just sad that he was like, wounded and in so much distress like uh (laughs) and yeah the story was just unpredictable in a good way in this episode for me now you say you knew mando wasn't going to die i actually was very worried i was sincerely worried for a second and i was like are they going like cara dune as the new mandalorian season two like are they gonna pull a fast one on us i i I thought but i I should have been a little more uh, intuitive on that yeah, I mean, I thought there was no way they kill him off at the end of season one like this. I mean, I guess it was possible. I just never considered that possibility. Uh, but maybe that's <laughs> the strength think- of what this episode did. Because if I'm that, if I'm thinking that, you know, this episode is really hitting the emotional parts of it. You know, like it's really getting yeah. you so involved and so invested that that's what you're thinking at that point. That's what I was thinking. That's that speaks to its strength. Yeah, and that's that's what I mean by it was unpredictable in a good way because like I thought he was going to get out of this, but at the same time I was starting to get genuinely concerned. Like when she pulls her hand away and it's covered in blood, I was like, this uh, is not good. This yeah. is really not good. And I wasn't sure how they were going to get out of the situation and escape from Gideon. So that really kept me on the edge of my seat the whole time of like, 
okay, I know they're going to get out of this, I think, but how? So I loved the way it just kept me guessing the whole time. It was just such a solid episode. Yeah. Now, speaking of get, um, getting emotionally invested in these characters and really cementing that in our minds, luckily we're going to get more of them in season two, but we learned quite a bit about these new, these characters in this episode. A lot. Yes, we did. And now we can finally, Madison, stop calling Mando Mando. Yes. And we can call him Din. Din Jaren, the decommissioned Mandalorian hunter who has heard the songs of the Siege of Mandalore and was witness to the Night of a Thousand Tears, according to Moff Gideon. So Din Jaren, moving forward, we will be referring to him as that. Pedro Pascal had leaked it earlier in the season, unfortunately, <laughs> but we did not want to ruin the surprise to any of our listeners who hadn't heard about that. So cat's out of the bag, Madison, and I'm excited. Pedro has been removed from Dave Filoni's trust tree. <laughs> <laughs> Pedro Pascal has left the chat. <laughs> Yeah, I was excited to get more background on everybody in this episode. And they were throwing a lot of lore at us uh, when he was talking about how Din talked about how he's part of the Mandalorian Corps. Is that what he called it? Like he was a member of the Corps and then he obviously got decommissioned at mm -hmm. some point. I'm not sure what all went on there. Um, but he talks about like the registers of Mandalore. His name is stored there. Yeah. Which I don't think we've ever heard of a register of Mandalore before, so that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and apparently Moff Gideon was an ISB officer during the Great Purge, but he was thought to have been executed for his war crimes. So for yes. Din to know that his name is known by this guy, he knows it's the real Moff Gideon. You know, he's not messing around. And that's kind of when the stakes really rise in this episode. And you're like, oh shit, like Moff Gideon knows a lot about each of these characters. Like, And that's my favorite type of villain. And again, Giancarlo Esposito is so good. And this is why he needed to be in this show because he really comes off as not somebody who's just reading lines from a script. He comes off as like truly embracing the character and knowing the ins and outs of his personality. And it feels like he is truly the bearer of this knowledge. Like it, it just really comes across so, so well and so terrifyingly, he honestly. He reminds me of Thrawn, to be honest, because yeah. he seems like a guy who really studies his opponents and likes knowing a lot about them before yes. he confronts them. Mm -hmm. He seems like a major strategist, and that's always an interesting villain type to me. Yes. And yeah, John Carlo is just so, he's so charismatic. I love the way he delivers every line. Him and Carl Weathers just like make you want to listen to them. <laughs> I'm so happy, too, that we're going to get him in season two. Like, I was kind of bummed at first because I thought he was dead. I should have known mm -hmm. better, but I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's it for him. And then finally knowing that he's going to be an adversary in season two. So we're good. He's I was like, oh, if I don't see the body, he's alive. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have to see the body as proof. But yeah, I was very glad too, because I was like, he's a really good villain. I hope we don't just get two episodes of him and then he's dead. So I'm really excited to have him come back in season two because Absolutely. that's when you get really invested in a protagonist antagonist relationship because if it continues and that rivalry keeps building, that's when you get really invested instead of just mm -hmm. like the one off kind of thing. So I'm just I'm really excited. And that's what worked with something like in the Clone Wars between Maul and Obi-Wan. I think that was some of the most convincing like hero villain dynamics I've ever seen in Star Wars. And to have mm -hmm. that continued in the Star Wars Rebels eventually, again, it's that buildup, like you're saying, works so well. So to have them not make that mistake of like, oh, let's kill Maul in episode one. Like, oh, let's kill Moff Gideon in, in season one. Now you have that anchor. Yeah, exactly. 
So let's let's talk about Kara a little bit because we finally learned that in this episode that she's from Alderaan and like I I freaked out, Brad. Yes. <laughs> Kara Cynthia Dune of Alderaan. <laughs> yes. Witnessed many of her ranks vaporized. Ugh. So I I assume he's talking about the destruction of Alderaan there. Yeah. <laughs> and I just I have a lot of questions now. Number one being Okay, we're about to go full like analyzing the braid now. <laughs> because I like I always noticed the braid before, but like Alderon has this braid culture basically where like each kind of braid and hairstyle means something important. So now I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope they like bring that up in a future episode because I'm so interested to learn more about that and like I don't know, I guess we know how like why she joined up now. She probably was off world when the destruction of Alderaan happened and she was angry about it and wanted to join up and do something. And that would explain her intense hatred for Imperials even more. Like it makes even more sense to me now than it already did Mm -hmm. because it's not just like I saw that I fought them and I saw my comrades get killed by them. It's like they destroyed my entire planet. Yeah. And it just makes so much sense when you think about how she didn't want to come along with Din uh, for this mission until he's like, oh, it's an Imperial. And she's like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely makes sense now looking looking back at that conversation. And I, I know me and you are on the same page of we definitely want more sorts of episodes where we find out about characters that are all set in the past. And that's sometimes the best strength of, of TV storytelling. But even if we didn't get an episode dedicated to Kara and we got some sort of flashback similar to what we've been getting with the Mandalorian and Din as a kid, mm-hmm. I would love that sort of thing with Kara Dune, like her reliving some of those traumatic memories of maybe watching her planet get destroyed, you know? Was she in the same yeah. airspace as the Millennium Falcon when it happened? Was she flying back home? Was she somewhere at a bar and watching it on TV or hearing the reports of this planet that's just been blown up, kind of like how Kaz finds out in Star Wars Resistance about Hazian oh, Prime man. blowing up. So that could be some really interesting ways to get even more invested in her story and kind of see what she's been through and also get the meaning behind that braid. Because I got to imagine it has something to do maybe with her family. Maybe it's the one mm-hmm. thing that she has left to them. So she ties it around her hair and keeps it with her at all times. Yeah, that's something I hope to see in season two is like maybe change things up a bit and have like an episode for Kara and her backstory mm-hmm. and maybe have an episode for Moff Gideon and yeah. his backstory. I think that could be really interesting to like flesh out all these different characters even more going forward. Yeah. And again, it's, it's just a matter of those quieter episodes that don't necessarily have to fit into the entire plot, but can be a case study on these characters. And once we get to a certain point in season two, we understand their decisions better and they carry more emotional weight for the viewer because of what we know about yeah. them, you know? Yeah. And speaking of flashbacks, we finally got the complete flashback for Den in this episode. And it's like, yes, we're finally going to get answers. <laughs> Who rescues him, Brad? Death Watch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so cool. I was so excited. Like, I figured it was going to be a Mandalorian, but to like have it specifically be Death Watch was super interesting. Yeah. And I think it's a good connection, too, because like, we know that at least one member of the covert that he's a part of is a Vizsla. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good connection to Death Watch because we know like at the time pre-Vizsla was kind of running Death Watch. Yeah. Yeah. We will certainly get more into into Death Watch in our Easter egg section. But I knew right away when I saw that that uh, that symbol on on their shoulder blades and 
I loved how much these helmets looked like Boba Fett's helmet too. Because a lot of the Mandalorian mm-hmm. helmets have had different designs, different aerodynamics about them, but this one looked straight up like Boba's. So I, I got to oh, wonder yeah. if, if that's the Death Watch helmet. Maybe Jango Fett somehow got his from a Death Watch person, or maybe he stole one off of him, because we know he's not true Mandalorian, but also now we understand that more- Mandalorian's not just a race, it's a creed. Exactly. So by that token, is Jango Fett truly a Mandalorian? Has he always truly been a Mandal- Mandalorian? Was he inducted into their society? So it definitely poses some some new questions about what we know about previous Mandalorians, but the way that the scene is shot and the slow buildup of the music, everything happening within the frame itself is very fast-paced, very chaotic, and you kind of feel that trauma of him reliving this in his own mind and just how dire their circumstances are as the family's running and death is happening all around. And my, my mom was like, why can't you get in there with him? <laughs> and I was like, this feels like a Jack and Rose situation where Jack's like, I'll never let go. And then there's like definitely enough room on the raft for him. But anyways. You know, that's a really good question. Why had I not considered that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, mom's asking the real questions here. But I got I to gotta imagine it's kind of that, you know, parental sacrifice where they worry if they're with him, he might be he might be found more easily. So they just want to get him safe first and foremost. And maybe they got some other things they got to do before that. So they put mm-hmm. him away and then they want to go do the other things, but then they die immediately, which is kind of the most tragic yeah. part because he probably thinks, you know, oh, they got to do such and such and they'll come back. And as soon as that door closes, boom. And that's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. I mean, it was very much like Jen being hidden by her parents. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I loved the I love the music, how it changed too when the Mandalorian opened the doors. Yes. And, like the, he's backlit and this the music is like showing us how din views them at this point like they're these almost like greek gods the way he looks at them like so heroic and he's like i want to be that like you can see how much he is literally looking up to them in this scene and he just immediately wants to go with them and i love the shot of him being carried away uh when the mandalorian uses the jetpack too because it was it was good foreshadowing for later yeah (laughs) And the other shot, too, I really loved is when the Death Watch Mandalorian is standing above the pit and we see his shadow cast on Din. And Din is centered right inside the chest plate of the Mandalorian. So to me, that's symbolizing the Mandalorian that we know, Din, now in current day, is still that child inside the armor. So I love that imagery right there. And I I think that kind of thing is very much on purpose. That's, That's the reading of it we're supposed to have. And we know that this season has really told us that he never got to live his childhood truly. He, you know, he got inducted into this this creed, and that's the the life he's been living ever since. But now this baby Yoda is bringing out that child within him that's been hidden away. Literally hidden yep. away. Child in a mask. Yeah. Very common theme <laughs> in Star Wars nowadays, apparently. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, Grief Karga, he's a disgraced magistrate. What is that about? I don't know. But, you know, Moff Gideon asks him to search the wisdom of his years. So it seems to me that Grief might be a little smarter than we, we've we put on. Because so far, at least in the earlier part of the season, he kind of seemed like a caricature in some ways. Like mm-hmm. he kind of was a little bit clueless. But I definitely think he's very, very intelligent. And I yeah. think especially after he double-crossed his own bounty hunters and the way he runs his operations, the fact that he's been doing it for this long... I think speaks a lot about him. 
Yeah, I wonder if he kind of did like, what was his name, Prime Minister Almec in The Clone Wars, mm-hmm. where it was kind of like he was in a position of power, but he misused his power and was kind of running a black market criminal enterprise and got, <laughs> you know, yeah. fired basically, and then just kept on running the criminal enterprise. Like, <laughs> I feel like that could be what happened. Definitely uh, a bit of collusion and a bit of uh, conflict of interest for grief in his early days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, why is Grief Cargo always exonerating all the criminals? <laughs> I wonder why. Why is Grief Cargo so rich? <laughs> he lives in a castle. Yes. All right. So the other character that I think we got a lot more uh, awesome moments in, of in this episode was the armorer. She's she's amazing. <laughs> yeah. She like. Oh my gosh, when she started fighting those stormtroopers and was literally <laughs> breaking their helmets with her like hammer thing she was using, yeah. I was just like, holy crap. <laughs> she took melee combat to a whole new level. She did. And I loved how like when they walked in, she was kneeling there like meditating like Qui-Gon style. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as soon as that scene happened, my mom goes, you go girl. And she's right. I mean... I would have been a little bummed if we had just gotten her simply for the the point of exposition to be like, okay, here's your video game checkpoint on with it. You get the jetpack now, you know, mm-hmm. but to actually have her do something significant and like have this amazing moment. Emily Swallow, I bet was extremely thrilled when she filmed that scene. If she filled that, filmed oh, yeah. that scene, whether or not she used a stunt yeah. double, but I know she took to, to Instagram and I, she posted some funny image of like, when you finally see the armorer like kick some ass or something, and then it was like a meme of Baby Yoda <laughs> with his mouth open, like as if he was just jaw dropped. And I'm like, she's having fun. Yes, but it, it, it remains to be seen if she survived. I, I got to imagine yeah. maybe she maybe she got through it. I think she definitely could have. And we learn here that the covert, a lot of the covert has been destroyed. There's this mound of armor on the floor, which was really sad to see. I was like, my gosh, they like they really paid for what they did in chapter three coming out to help him. It's kind of like I'm just wondering what's going on here because the Empire has been overthrown, but they're just like on top of it. As soon as they see like there's some Mandalorians living here, they're like there to get rid of them, like to exterminate them. And I'm like... That's interesting that like the Empire at this point is still that uh, uh, almost obsessed with like getting rid of the Mandalorians. I don't know. But she did say that some of them might have escaped. I, I'm going to take that as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's there to I think she's like melting down their armor again. Right. To be reused later. Yeah. I was hoping it's she like... was going to make Baby Yoda armor there. <laughs> I was on my edge of my seat. I was like, I, is she going to make him a helmet? <laughs> I thought that for a, like a split second. I was like, are we legit about to get baby Yoda armor? <laughs> <laughs> He's got to at some point. I feel like it's going to happen, especially given what happens at the end of the episode. But it's on yeah, the horizon. I bit. mean, baby Yoda is officially a Mandalorian now, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> And Din is officially his father. That was a nice heartwarming moment in this episode when she's like, oh, you saved it and it saved you. And he's finally worthy of the signet and he gets the mud horn, which looks awesome. Yeah. And you are as its father. This is the way. And he's just like, all right, I'm the daddy now. Let's do this. Let's roll out of here. (laughs) Yes. There was so much happening in the scene. Like I was trying to take it all in because... 
she talks about some interesting stuff here too about like the Jedi and she calls them these ancient sorcerers that had this they fought wars against Mandalore the Great and I'm like oh this is good stuff like I wonder if because we know the Mandalorian wars have been recanonized as of Star Wars Rebels um but I think those were a little after in the old EU, like after uh, Mandalore the Great and the timeline mm-hmm. by like a few hundred years. So I wonder if they're like they're they're setting up this ancient rivalry between the Jedi and the Mandalorians where like this has been going on for centuries. Right. And I think that would be really compelling. And it's possible, too. It's going to be more explored in Star Wars, the Clone Wars season seven, which is coming out in just over a month. And I think a lot of things that were said in this episode are probably setting us up for that. You know, why are the Jedi considered enemies? They launched this assault on Mandalore with led by a yeah. and Captain Rex. And yeah, also definitely. against Darth Maul, who came in and claimed to be the leader of Death Watch. And mm-hmm. so there seems to be a very, yeah, very, very largely held grudge against any sort of force wielder. But, and yeah. not to be not to be too much of a conspiracy theorist here, but we know there's like some new Star Wars film trilogies coming, mm-hmm. and it would not at all surprise me if one of these trilogies is set in the Old Republic. And if so, what if it's the Mandalorian Wars? Because they're building this, they're building the Mandalorians up in the minds of the general audience by getting everyone invested in the Mandalorian. They're yep. getting introduced slowly to all this stuff. And they're going to have Mandalorian stuff in the Clone Wars again. It's all like building to something, I feel like. And I'd be totally up for it if that's what one of the new trilogies is. Anyway, yeah, no, just, a, just a thought. You make an excellent <laughs> point, though. I think I think 100% after seeing this, they're going backwards for the next trilogy mm-hmm. of movies. Because if you go forwards, then you have a, a contingent of people asking, you know, where are all of our characters? You know, but if you go far yeah. enough back, it's like kind of a blank slate in a way. And we know the Darksaber was a thousand years before the Battle of Yavin. It was, you know, the first Mandalorian ever who was inducted into the Jedi Order. So if we were to somehow get the Old Republic, where you have the Jedi, the Sith, and maybe the Darksaber's origin, it creates a pretty compelling story and some things that are maybe hinted at in The Rise of Skywalker, you know, uh, a a dyad not seen in many generations. Maybe we also get that story along with all these other uh, contextual uh, storylines of, of the Darksaber and Mandalorians and the Jedi and Sith War. So I definitely think we're going backwards. <clears throat> Revan and Bastila. <clears throat> Would not be opposed. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the other important thing that Din gets in this scene is the jetpack, which we've been waiting for, I feel like, all season. Like, when's he going to get a jetpack? <laughs> and, you know, there was, like, foreshadowing when he was like, I need to get me one of those. And <laughs> It finally happened. Yay! And she she used an interesting phrase, the rising phoenix. Love it. Love I love it. that rebirthing imagery. And she says it will only listen to your commands once you know it. So yeah. that kind of creates an interesting mythology behind jetpacks. You know, you probably, probably yeah. always have thought, you know, just whatever, you click a button and you go. But it seems to be more of like a mental connection with the jetpack. Like the jetpack can sense kind of how it answers to you in a way almost like the dark saber because i know the dark saber is very much the way it hums and the way the blade looks change based on your emotional state so it seems mm-hmm. like mandalorian technology in a way does that in general and that's the same thing with this jetpack you know if he unless he truly believes he can own that thing and and ride it as is it's not going to listen to him 
Yeah, that was really interesting to me because doesn't she say like, have you trained in the Rising Phoenix? And he was like a little. Um, right. And I was like, that's interesting that they have like a whole kind of training program almost dedicated to this. And I wonder how it works. Like, like you said, is it some kind of weird telepathic connection going on? I have no idea how that works, but I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> Madison, we got to get our was- hands on jetpack camp this summer. Yes. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> I want one. Yeah, me too. All right, we'll we'll plan he it obviously, out. Uh, he obviously knows a little bit more than he lets on, though, as evidenced by the end of the episode, but <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> now, this episode's called Redemption. Chapter 8, Redemption. Who gets redeemed in this mm-hmm. episode, Madison? What does the title mean? Well, I think it can have a couple of meanings. Uh, first, I guess I'll say quickly, I think it's part of it is the completion of Den's redemption arc because this whole first season I feel like has been him coming back to life going from death to life and baby Yoda has given him that like adopting this child and this is the episode where he finally accepts that role of father so I think it's I think it's partially referring to him but I think the main subject who this is referring to is IG-11 who went from basically a a murder droid to a nurse droid (laughs) and he is now a guardian of you know a guardian of life instead of going around just hunting and killing right so that was really satisfying to have him like I was talking about at the beginning of the show showing up and taking out those scout troopers who were beating up baby Yoda (laughs) that was immensely satisfying and yeah he just rides into town and is just wiping out these stormtroopers. It was amazing. It was a wonderful callback, actually, to chapter one when he goes into this town or hideout, whatever you want to call it, and he's taking out all these bounty hunters, mercenaries, whoever they were, to get to Baby Yoda so that he could terminate him. Mm-hmm. And now it's the complete reversal of that where he's protecting the child right. from anyone who dares to harm a, a hair on his head. And I was just like... <laughs> That That is character development. I love it. When his legs step into the frame at the beginning of the episode, I was like, thank God. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. I know I, I know he's going to win now. Like they can't, they can't beat him. These guys can't even hit a can on the ground and they're done. You know? <laughs> so I think this is probably one of my favorite cold opens of the season too. And just the way that he swoops in, breaks some arms, smashes one of the troopers against the speeder bike, and then just takes off. And he's like, I'm sorry you had to see that child. And baby Joe's like, yeah. the first time, honestly. Dad does this all the time. It's it's pretty normal stuff. And the way he swoops away and the bike zooms right towards the screen and we get right into the Mandalorian. We get that tribal music kicking in the gear and then we get redemption. And we're like, oh my God, this is going to be a good one. It was so good. And just a quick aside, the swoop bikes looked amazing in this show. Yeah. It looked so good. Absolutely. Watching him roll into town and they're like, what is that? And he just comes in there and starts kicking ass and shooting every single stormtrooper in his path. I was like, guy does not miss at all. And yeah. I love the one shot of when they are looking and they kind of hear what's going on and you see the one stormtrooper turn his head. That's a great shot. And then watching all the explosions happening down the street and you're like, oh God, he's coming. He's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and we get baby Yoda in the front seat going, ah, woo. He's having the best time of his life. I mean, talk oh about best gosh, babysitter that... ever. Galaxy's best babysitter, in fact. That was so cute. <laughs> he was just like <laughs> laughing, having the best time. <laughs> so, so but, good. 
But I think, again, going back to redemption, I think this is also a redemption for Din, too, because he's hated droids his whole life because of what the droids did to his village, to his parents. And he finally now learns to trust a droid. A droid saves his life. Mm-hmm. And he'll forever owe this droid. He'll forever remember him for the sacrifice he made to save not only Din, but also the child. Right. So I thought the not scene where they were the same. Yeah, exactly. So I thought the scene where they were in the cantina together uh, was just really great. And I never thought. I never thought that when Din finally took off his mask, it would be for IG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not at all. <laughs> Which I think that's kind of one of the surprising elements of this episode that you mentioned is that it's unpredictable. I would never, I would never mm-hmm. have thought that either. Yeah. And I didn't think about like the possible loophole and the rules of like, no living thing can see you without your mask on. But he's like, I am not a living thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really good. Yeah. Not only the fact that IG-11 is, he's taking his helmet off to let him heal him, but he's also trying to put him at ease. He's embracing the true nursing side of his programming now and being like, you have suffered damage to your central processing unit. You mean my brain? It was a joke. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> oh my and I love too, later on when they're in the lava tunnel and he says, you will live and I will have served my purpose. I know, mm-hmm. obviously, he's saying that the purpose is to protect Baby Yoda, but the way it's phrased sounds like his purpose was to keep Mando alive, to keep Din alive. And that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it was. I just loved seeing that connection where it was like Din was actually sad that he was going to sacrifice himself. And mm-hmm. ID's like, there's nothing to be sad about. And he's like, I'm not sad. And he's like, I analyzed your voice. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's nice like, Stop try. That. Stop that right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. It was great, too, watching IG just go off. And I loved how he kept spinning Baby Yoda around on his chest to protect yes. him. Because first off, I was like, why are you bringing Baby Yoda into the gunfight? I was like, you couldn't have just returned him to the Razor Crest first and then come into town? Come on, man. That's what I was saying. <laughs> but I trusted like, him. I trusted him enough. When I was watching the episode, I was like, wait, why didn't you just turn around, take him back to the ship, and then go save him? I was like, why? But I mean... I guess it kind of makes sense, like, leaving the baby alone has never turned out well. He always ends up trying to follow them, so, like, what if yeah. baby had gotten lost somewhere, like, wandering around, or if more imps had gone back for him? So, I guess it makes sense. God forbid he opens that door with the force and just all hell reigns loose. <laughs> all right, so... IG and Din's development. It's still weird for me to say Din. I keep wanting to say Mando. <laughs> I know. It's hard. It's a hard transition. It's very hard. We'll get there. So, yeah, their <laughs> their development was great in this episode. And I also loved really seeing like just how strong Kara and Din's friendship has become in this episode as well. When she refuses to leave him in the cantina, that hit me right in the feels. Yeah, definitely. Stay with me, buddy. I'm not yeah. going to make it. Shut up. Yeah. It's like a Han and Solo-esque conversation in a way and you could read it interpret it as she is friend zoning him by calling him buddy but you know she says i won't leave you Mm -hmm. and i know probably she looks at him as a friend but i think there's something else going on there and i think it's not something they want to rush and i would not be surprised if we get more of it hinted at in season two which we know she's going to be probably joining grease crew so it won't be the last time din sees her 
Yeah, I, I can't quite tell where they're going with this. I'm like, are they going the, the best friend forever route or are they doing <laughs> are, or is this going to be a romance and they're just right. neither of them are going to like even acknowledge that possibility yet? I'm I'm not sure yet where this is going, but they definitely have a really strong connection. And I got to say their performances in that scene were so good. Like Gina's been great so far, but this episode was definitely her strongest performance yet. I like really felt how distressed Kara was at the idea of leaving him. Yeah. And she was genuinely upset by that prospect. I got to say the way she was shooting that Gatling gun. Whoo. She looked great <laughs> doing it. She was a warrior and I love that. And she just looked like she was a total badass. and we need her, more of her and, and star Wars and watching her. I did think it was actually really interesting when the, the death troopers came in, I kind of started to feel for her in a way. And in mm-hmm. my mind, watching her, get very stressed over that and she kind of felt like in a way like her her emotions kind of took over and i think she was kind of thinking back to the idea of having her mind flayed and probably watching her home planet get destroyed and there was just a lot of things coming back at at her when she realized like this might be the end i'm trapped Mm -hmm. so that was a really vulnerable moment for her and something that i think even though she didn't speak any words you you felt what the character was going through and i think that was a result of her acting especially by the way, can we talk about that for a minute? The Mind Flare, which isn't yeah. that the name of the monster in Stranger Things? <laughs> it is. I think yeah. it is. I was like, what's a Mind Flare? I've never heard of that before in Star Wars. Like, And the fact that they brought it up makes me think like, okay, Grief said that's just wartime propaganda. And I'm like, the fact that they brought it up, though, makes me think it's not and that it's actually a real thing. Yeah. And that sounds about as awful as brain scraping. <laughs> <laughs> Mind Flayer is also a noise rock band from Providence, Rhode Island, just so you know, according to Google. They've been active uh, for almost 23 years, so. Thanks, Google. Thanks, Google. <laughs> hey, Alexa. I'm just kidding. Yeah. It sounds like a really horrible, like, imperial interrogation device, but I guess yeah. maybe we'll get some more expansion upon that in the future. But I, I totally agree with you. Like, she felt really vulnerable in that moment. She seemed actually genuinely afraid when she's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was portrayed really well by Gina. And I I really feel like she was kind of flashing back to the war in that moment yeah. um, and all that all that pain and kind of violence she would have witnessed. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a good scene. Seeing her work up the courage too, just finally, and she, you know, just completely obliterating those two death troopers, which I'm glad we heard him talk. Glad we heard the mm-hmm. garble sounds. I was worried we weren't going to get yes. them, but they're, they're there. If you listen. Yeah. And in the scene with Din that we were just talking about, she finally tried to take the mask off. She did try. No, 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 not in my house. <laughs> not yet but hopefully in the future yeah when he's they have got to kiss. He, he's got to break that rule eventually it's gonna happen like right he he's already made one exception now so i feel like it's just gonna get harder and harder for him to keep saying no to people <laughs> uh, you know what i hate to say i just popped into my head he says i've never taken my helmet off for a living thing what if he finally mm-hmm. takes his helmet off when Kara passes and he's got to take ha- it off and he tries he kisses her on the forehead or or Brad. Uh, tries to uh resuscitate her. Brad, no, how dare you? Technically she wouldn't be living and now I'm gonna no. cry. I can't no, have that no, happen. No. I can't Kara is it. never gonna die, okay? She's gonna live forever. <laughs> no more. They're all gonna Star live Wars. forever. Please make it end. 
So I'm just going to move right past that. <laughs> <laughs> we can't think that far. It's never going to happen. She lives forever. Kara never dies. I refuse mm-hmm. to think that will happen. The story lives forever. So <laughs> I <laughs> I just want to mention that line, too, where Din says, let me have a warrior's death, because that's such a Mandalorian thing to say. Like, they have this whole concept of, like, I don't want to be defeated. I'm going to have a warrior's death and I'm going to take as many people down with me as I can. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's going to be a philosophy of his that changes down the road. Like if he's going to keep that or I don't know, it almost feels like kind of throwing your life away. It it almost reminds me of something like Finn in The Last Jedi when he was like, no, I'm going to destroy the cannon. And Rose is like, no, you idiot. You're throwing your life away. Don't do that. (laughs) I wonder if Din's going to have a moment like that where someone maybe Kara I don't know she didn't do it this time but where someone says Dan you're throwing your life away don't be an idiot <laughs> right yeah so, I, I feel know. like he's just got to think a little bit more with his uh his head than his heart yeah because he immediately just goes like oh I'm done for I'm I'm dead just leave me but IG's like no I can just give you some back day and you're gonna be fine <laughs> yeah like, like chill dude god don't be so don't gotta dramatic. be so emo about it come on <laughs> It was an emotional moment, though. Like, I was actually very, very, like, tearful about the whole thing. And mm-hmm. and why, seeing Pedro Pascal's face, I thought maybe he was going to look different than the actual actor. I'm totally okay with what we got. And I was like, wow, he is truly vulnerable. Like, he just looks, he, he looks like a, a, a scared boy when he takes He's off a the helmet, boy. you know? Yeah. And we got to mention the moment, too. Madison, how does he get rescued? Oh my gosh. Moments of the season. <laughs> Baby Yoda holds back fire. Oh and then, my God. And then force pushes the fire into, back into the stormtrooper. <laughs> <laughs> Baby's first murder. Like when Baby Yoda uses the force, I get chills. Like I yeah. get tears in my eyes. Like this moment in particular, though, it was like the moment in chapter two when he lifted the mud horn. It was like that level for me. Yeah. I think those were my two favorite um, like Baby Yoda Force use moments in this whole season. Those were just incredible. And uh, when he like rises into frame, I was like, oh, boy, so here we go. <laughs> so good. And I love the music that plays. It's the same music from chapter two as well. When when Baby Yoda gets put back in his cradle by mando after he tries to heal mando's arm and mando's just kind of sitting there looking at him and we also get that same shot of like right behind baby yoda but we just see the Mm -hmm. ears so i think that's the closest we're going to get to like the true baby yoda theme i think that is his theme now That's what I was about to ask is whose theme is this? Is it Baby Yoda's theme? Because we've heard it in multiple episodes. Mm-hmm. And it's usually, I think, always in scenes with Baby Yoda or when like right. Mando and Baby Yoda are landing on a planet. Like, 
I don't know. I feel like it's his theme. But what's weird is that, Brad, why does it sound so much like Kylo Ren's theme? <laughs> he is the son of Kylo Ren. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no they're both. Know. Baby better not go to the dark side. They're both baby. That's why. That's why. Because, exactly. like, when he stands up and holds back the fire in this episode, it literally sounds like Kylo Ren's theme in Major Key. Like, I had, I took a moment and was like, okay, is this, like, just this, <laughs> the Star Wars sandbox thing, or is there, like, a purpose behind this? It just right. seems too on the nose to be an accident, but I don't know. I could be wrong. <laughs> I love, too, this time he used the Force, and he didn't get too tired afterwards. He was able to stay awake. Baby's growing yeah, up. Yeah, he was. You know? It's not his Baby's first learning. Time. Yeah, it's not his first rodeo. And we get an incredible moment with Grief Karga when they're getting attacked <laughs> by Moff Gideon and the TIE Fighter. And Grief goes, well, maybe we do that magic hand thing. Come on, baby. Do that magic hand thing. <laughs> and Baby Yoda just waves at him. I was like, that is one of the... Like, this mo- This episode had so many amazing moments packed into one single 48-minute story. Like, I can't believe yeah. how good this episode is. Like, ugh. So that funny. Moment. I was dying laughing at that. That moment was so cute. He's just like always waving at me and waves back. <laughs> <laughs> and it just goes to show he doesn't understand like words or vocabulary. He understands like inflections and he understands circumstance. Mm-hmm. He understands when the Mandalorian's in danger. He, un- he gets that. He can feel it. And that's again the force speaking to him. So even though he can't necessarily understand what grief wants him to do, he sees his dad on the ground and he's not moving. He gets it. He knows what's going on. And I, I love that kind of just intuition with the force and tapping into something that can kind of speak to you in a different way, even if you're a kid. Yeah, absolutely. And I said on a past episode that I was hoping we got more Kara and Baby Yoda moments in the future, and we definitely did in this <laughs> one. <laughs> like she's willing to take Baby Yoda when she thinks that Din is going to die. But then after that, when IG tries to pass him off to her, she's like, no, 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 I don't do the baby thing. <laughs> and i was like i was like kara din was just like you a few chapters ago and look where he is now (laughs) it's like that that shell is gonna get cracked she's gonna open up and and expose her true self soon enough Mm -hmm. yeah i really do feel like they're on very similar journeys and she's just a few steps behind him exactly and i i think she's gonna follow a very similar path and uh because she is so trying to like isolate herself in a way and like not get attached to anything mm-hmm. i think that she's her journey is going to be about opening up and uh being willing to get close to people again yeah and i, I know the next season you know we'll we'll focus a lot on baby jo- baby yoda we'll focus a lot <laughs> on baby yoda returning to his family or as the mandalorian puts it you expect me to search the galaxy for the home of this creature and deliver it to a race of enemy sorcerers so funny yeah that's sounded really dramatic when he put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> He's so dramatic in this episode. Yes. But I do but hope th- that we get plenty of Kara Dune still to come. I hope that we can split the storytelling between the two of these characters and still get more of her journey. Mm-hmm. I'm all about dual protagonists. Yes, absolutely. And I I have a lot of questions about like who he's going to end up giving Baby Yoda to because Yoda thought he was the last of his kind. Mm-hmm. So it's Baby Yoda, the last of his kind, and that's what they're going to discover, that he's the last one? Or Ooh. are they going to find more of Yoda's species? I have a feeling they're going to find part of a species, and I think that's when we're going to find out what planet they're from and what their species name is. 
Please tell us I what think, they're called. Yeah, Lucas I think film. that's what's going <laughs> to come out of this series. But it also would be tragic if, if indeed there is no one left besides Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's it's kind of like, you know, Mandalorian realizes he's in this life for good. And coming to grips with that might be a journey for him now to be like, you know, I can never go back to the old ways. This is the yeah. way. Because Star Wars is about both blood family and found family. I wonder if the mm-hmm. answer for Baby Yoda is finding his blood family or if it's going to be his found family with Din and if he's going to end up staying with him. But th- right. the fact is, Din can't train him in the Force. Someone needs to train Baby Yoda. So right. I wonder if the answer is going to be trying to find a force user and maybe not like one of his species, but just finding a Jedi or finding a force user who can teach baby Yoda. Ahsoka. Uh, yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. That would be awesome. I would, I can that. totally see that happening. Honestly, with Dave Filoni being so yeah. involved in this series, like Dave's like, let's bring in Ahsoka. <laughs> and at least if Ahsoka is not going to train baby Yoda, she could bring him to the right place to be protected. Exactly. So, well, Madison, Fingers crossed. it's time for the Easter Egg Roundup, where we search for any and all nods to the larger Star Wars canon within The Mandalorian. What did we find this week? Well, as always, stormtroopers can't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I was just dying laughing when they were trying to shoot the can, and they just kept missing. Yes. That was amazing. So, so good. Taika Waititi definitely leans so heavily into that. And and those those guys are both played by Jason Sudeikis and Adam Pally. So great to see some of those guys getting involved. Yes. Our next Easter egg is the E-Web. The E-Web returns last seen in Empire Strikes Back. It is a emplacement heavy. It is an emplacement weapon heavy blaster. Not too great with weapons in Star Wars, but here I am reading it off Wikipedia. <laughs> it is a heavy repeating blaster with a range of up to 750 meters. That is far as heck. They stood no chance in that cantina. But the last time we saw it was when the snowtroopers were attempting to thwart the Millennium Falcon's escape from Echo Base on Hoth, but to no avail. It was really great to see Mando especially take the E-Web and start shooting, kind of similar to what he did in Episode 1 when mm-hmm. they were raiding that compound. So again, it was like, look how far we've come. You know, it's sometimes some things never change. You know, he looks at the gun, he goes, all right, here we go again. And it's yeah. just a great moment of remembrance for us who have been on this journey since November 12th. Yeah. So there was also a fun reference back to the garbage shoot and A New Hope when that's how Luke and Lan Han escape on the Death Star by going into the garbage <laughs> chute. They're like, hey, let's go into the sewer. And Kara is just like on top of it, shooting that thing with her gun. <laughs> I guess we can call it a bit of an Alderaanian tradition. Yeah. Yeah, because no one thinks to blast the damn thing open until she says it. So much like Princess yeah. Leia. Yeah, I wonder if I love Kara it. has ever met Princess Leia. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. You know, like what if they were friends in grade school? (gasps) I need this in my life. You know, like what if it's just spitballing here? What if we do get some sort of flashback to Alderaan and we get like Millie Bobby Brown playing young Princess Leia and her and Kara are in class together? (laughs) I'm just making shit up at this point. How much older is Leia than Kara? Like five or 10 years, maybe? Yeah, I got to imagine the age gap isn't actually that big because, I mean, what, yeah. this is five years after Return of the Jedi? So Kara is like probably what in her late, her early mid 30s? Maybe. And I feel like I don't know. when Leia joins the Rebellion and in A New Hope, she's like 20 something. I think she's only 19 in that. Yeah. 
So it's Kara possible. might actually be older. I'm not sure though. This can happen. Yeah. Make it happen, John Favreau. Come on. <laughs> so we get more information on the Siege of Mandalore and the Night of a Thousand Tears, or at least reference to the Siege of Mandalore, which was one of the final battles in the Clone Wars in which the Galactic Republic, led by Ahsoka Tano and clone Captain Rex, against the Sith Lord Darth Maul, who leads an assault against the Republic. And we learn the Night of a Thousand Tears, according to Moff Gideon, was an event in which gunships laid waste to fields full of Mandalorian recruits. So I got to imagine, I don't know if this is the, not the same events that we see Din go through. That's not, I don't think that's what that is, I believe. I think this is separate. Is that kind of the the inkling that you got that the Night of a Thousand Tears is not the flashback of him as a kid being rescued? Yeah, I think that's a different thing. Okay. Like, because the Night like, of a Thousand because, Tears seems to be a, a Siege of Mandalore event. Exactly. And he, I don't think he was on Mandalore at that time. I think he was kind of on his own planet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think those are two different things. Okay. But nonetheless, perfect setup for season seven of Clone Wars, which is coming out in February. So give me Definitely. more of Ahsoka Tano versus Darth Maul. Holy hell. I need it in my life. And we know that Darth Maul is going to be wielding the dark saber in that season. So pretty great. I'm so excited. I can't wait. (laughs) Big stuff. So there was a fun Rocky reference in this episode. If you look hard enough, (laughs) (laughs) pulled this one out of the butt. (laughs) Yeah, because uh, Mandalorian is not a race. It's a creed, which was spoken to Grief Cargo, played by Carl Weathers who was Apollo Creed in the Rocky series. Yeah. So what do you think, Brad? Is it a reference? Are we looking too hard? Nope. Absolutely (laughs) a reference. I'll take everything I can get. And especially because at Star Wars Celebration Chicago, Carl came out on the celebration stage to a roaring crowd crowd of fans and delivered his famous lines from Rocky. I want you. I want you. I want you. And the entire (laughs) crowd responded in kind. They, They said the same thing back. Everybody was quoting Rocky. I was like, this is the weirdest group of star wars and rocky stands i've ever seen but i love every second of it so and many months later we we feel some sort of callback or at least i'll take whatever i can grasp at at this point and we'd like to introduce a new actor to all of you you may not know him yet but you definitely will carl weathers So our next Easter egg, we mentioned a little bit earlier, but let's talk more about Death Watch. So when Din Djarin thinks all hope is lost, along come these Mandalorians from Death Watch. Uh, They're an ancient clan of warriors who were thought to be long gone and exiled to the Concordia moon, but were resurrected in the Clone Wars by Pre Vizsla. Their blue armor is both legendary and easily recognizable, striking fear into their enemies. Count Dooku attempted to side with Death Watch to help them take back a neutral Mandalore attempting to bury a violent past but he gave up on the effort 
It wasn't until Darth Maul came along, who we've just been talking about, that Death Watch joined his Shadow Collective and reconquered Mandalore. God, this stuff is so fascinating to me. Like, I, I love Death Watch so much. Like, how excited They're are so you cool. to get, get more of them in, in, in Clone Wars? I'm so excited. Wow. I just love each time I get more information about anything Mandalore related. It's just so fascinating to me, like all the different factions yeah. and how they all disagree on like what being a Mandalorian should mean. Mm-hmm. And you bring up Pre Vizsla, who was voiced appropriately by John Favreau in the Clone Wars, and Favreau being the creator of the Mandalorian. So I mean, it's all mm-hmm. coming together. All these, all these, uh, all these roads lead to this one path now. And according to StarWars.com, regarding the sigil of Death Watch, it says Mandalorian Death Watch, which approximately 60 before Battle of Yavin, they adopted the clan sigil of their leader, Tor Vizsla, as their symbol of choice. Known as the Secret Mandalore, Tor Vizsla and the future Death Watch leaders would use this symbol to separate their group from those faithful to the true Mandalorians of Jaster Mareel. The clan Vizsla symbol was based on a shriek, hawk, and a full dive and was colored blue under the leadership of Pre Vizsla during the Clone Wars. It was traditionally red before that. This symbol saw a resurgence in use as the Death Watch found new life under the leadership of Lorca Geddick in 19 BBY. However, it is unknown if the symbol survived the Death, Death Watch's demise in approximately 2 ABY. So, this is interesting. Is the Death That's Watch's so demise in 2 ABY, is that the Great Purge? I think it might be. And this, do note, this was actually written a very long time ago, this this article on on StarWars.com, and I'm pulling up the note now, and it was December 18th, 2013. And there's many other symbols on here, including the Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders symbol, the true Mandalorian led by Jaster Mareel, which actually uh, has some merchandise or is on Doc Ondar's wall in Galaxy's Edge. And then we also get the commonly used symbol of the Kreebs, which is that traditional mandalorian mythosaur skull so there's a lot going on here there's a lot of these symbols and i'll link it in the i'll link it in the description of this episode but what do you think about that madison oh man this stuff is so interesting and i hope that as the as the show continues we keep getting more and more tidbits about what happened and uh, maybe uh more about how din's din grew up with the death watch maybe and like when the split happened and when the covert became a thing like was his covert were they all members of death watch and then death watch was kind of wiped out like i'm i'm very interested in all that stuff to kind of know how all the pieces fit together yeah i i'm so excited to learn more about this and only time will tell i think i think we'll get a lot of mandalorian lore in the coming season and possibly seasons and i think now that the dark saber is introduced nothing is off the table at this point mm-hmm agreed so Madison, watch out. The floor is lava. Don't step on it. <laughs> now, this is a small one, but I truly, again, my mind goes to these places when I hear these things. And IG-11, when they're getting on the boat, says, watch your feet. It's molten lava. And I can't help but think of the cool kid meme that all the all the kids are talking about these days. The floor is lava. And it's that fun game you probably played as a kid when you'd throw pillows around your living room and try to jump from one place to the other without touching and if you touch you die because you fall into the lava so i think that's you purpose. know i'm i'm gonna choose to believe that it's a reference i think so and it's a taika watiti delivered line so like i think so you know <laughs> yeah totally so finally we have gotten to my favorite easter egg of all which is <laughs> the dark saber <laughs> 
I lost my mind when this Absolutely. appeared in the episode. Like I recognized it as soon as he was getting out of the TIE fighter. And I was like, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> He's cutting his way out. with yeah. Like I literally was like, is it the dark saber? Is it? It is. <laughs> My mind went from, oh, he's got a nice little hefty, nifty uh, welding torch to get out of his TIE fighter. Oh, that's a black <laughs> uh, black saber. Oh, it has a white outline. Oh my God, it's the dark saber. Holy shit. <laughs> Which first appeared January 29th of 2010 in Star Wars The Clone Wars' is The Mandalore Plot. So it's been almost 10 years, Brad. Wow. <laughs> Finally got the live action Inception. Great. Finally. And I got to say, it looks good because that is something that works well in animation, but could easily look like really corny or just bad in live action, but it looks amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in an interview with IGN's Eric Goldman on January 28th, which was a day before the Darksaber was first introduced on Cartoon Network, Dave Filoni was discussing how when they originally created the Darksaber, it came straight from George Lucas, actually. And it was originally meant to be a vibroblade, which was an electric sword that would be adapted from the extended universe. But Filoni got as far as the design phase and shooting some scenes, and George kind of felt like the non-lightsaber aspect of this vibroblade shouldn't be able to battle a lightsaber. Something just kind of felt off about it. So Dave Filoni said in this interview, so he had us do away with the vibroblade in that episode really late in the game, and he created something called the Darksaber, which would be a black-bladed energy saber with a white edge. It has a crackle of electricity. It's kind of like a more ancient version of a lightsaber, and it's inferred in the episode that it's really one of a kind, and Pre Vizsla's ancestors stole it from the Jedi in the days of the Old Republic. So it's got all this neat history attached to it right away, and it sounds different. Mm-hmm. Oh, George. George is, <laughs> George is wonderful. We love him. <laughs> that- Dave Filoni's vision is finally being seen live action, and go him. Yes. He's deserved every second of it, regardless of how good or whatever of a director he is, he has done so much for Star Wars storytelling and introducing so many of these new concepts and carrying on George's legacy. And he probably knows Star Wars better than any other person, honestly. Absolutely. All right. So the Darksaber, like you just said, has a really extensive history. It's passed through a lot of hands. So let's go through some of those. Kanan Jarrus said in Star Wars Rebels, this was one of a kind. Legend tells us that it was created over a thousand years ago by Tar Vizsla, the first Mandalorian ever inducted into the Jedi Order. After his passing, the Jedi kept the saber in their temple. That was until members of House Vizsla snuck in and liberated it. That's an interesting word choice there. <laughs> they, they used the saber to unify the people and strike down those who would oppose them. At one time, they ruled all of Mandalore wielding this blade. This saber is an important symbol to that house and respected by the other clans. This is great stuff, honestly. I love this. This this just hit me, but it being important to House Vizsla in particular makes me think like, okay, Din was rescued by Death Watch, who, you know, pre-Vizsla was in charge of that group, and there's a Vizsla that was part of his covert. Right. Like, I feel like... Din's going to take this super personally that Gideon has the dark saber and he's going to want it back. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And we know the blade fell into the hands of Pre Vizsla, who eventually was killed by Darth Maul. And then later on, it gets passed down to Sabine Wren and ultimately into the hands of Bo-Katan Kryze, who was the former leader of the Mandalorian Resistance and sister of Duchess Satine Kryze, the love of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So yes. one thing I actually find really interesting about the Darksaber is you can't actually transfer it unless you kill its previous owner. 
In some ways, it makes me think of like the Elder Wand from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. So I kind of find that aspect of it very interesting. Again, it's like this very like ancient ritualistic weapon, much like the jetpack. It answers to certain types of people. And I like how it's not always just black and white. There's a gray area and it's it's a very intuitive thing. And you have to really tap into some sort of knowledge or feeling in order to like wield these things properly. Yeah. And now we are all very concerned about Bo-Katan. Absolutely. What do you think? What do you think's going on? How did it fall into Moff Gideon's hands now after after passing through several several owners? I think that he must have claimed it during the Great Purge is my theory. And that when they came in and wiped out the Mandalorians, he might have faced the leader at that time, Bo-Katan, and maybe single combat and won. Yeah, because again, if we're to believe it's 2ABY, that's after the Battle of Yavin, that's after the events of Star Wars Rebels in which Bo-Katan is wielding it, so... I think you're right, Madison. I think you're on the something. And what do you think? What do you think Katie Sackhoff's been doing recently? Man, I hope we get to see her play Bo-Katan in live action and that there's a whole because I was talking about earlier how I would love to see a flashback episode with Moff mm-hmm. Gideon and kind of like showing us how he got to where he is. And I think that would be amazing if they actually showed us maybe a little bit of what the Great Purge was like and showing yeah. us that battle between those two. Even though I don't want to see Bo-Katan die, that would be really Mm -hmm. sad. That would be an incredible scene. Yeah, and they've mentioned the Great Purge so many times, I feel like it has to be mentioned at some point, you know? Or shown at some point. Mm -hmm. And just think, like, we'd get this giant army of Mandalorians facing down the Empire. And if we got that for, like, an entire 45-minute episode, it it would blow every single Star Wars fan out of the water. Like, we would be absolutely jaw-dropped at that site. And to see Katie Sackhoff appearing as Bo-Katan... Which, cryptically, she tweeted a couple months ago that she had done something, the coolest thing she's ever done in her career. And this was, like, the first or second week The Mandalorian started filming, so I'm kind of curious. I hope I hope it's true. That would just be amazing. It would be a huge missed opportunity if they didn't, but I feel like with Dave Filoni mm-hmm. at the helm of this thing, it's bound to happen. I think he wants... And he, he He's even said at D23 it's not off the table to introduce cartoon characters into this live-action Disney Plus show. Yeah. Bring in Bo-Katan, bring in Ahsoka. <laughs> you know, it'd be interesting, though, if his Moff Gideon stole it. Maybe the Darksaber is not answering to him the way he thinks it could. That would kind be interesting. Kind of like with Voldemort, you know? Mm-hmm. So, we um, always bring it back to Harry Potter. It just fits so well. <laughs> I know. I was like, I can't go the whole season of Mandalorian without talking about Harry Potter somehow. But I, I'm yeah. so excited to find out what this is all about. Yeah, I hope this builds to a really epic duel between Gideon and Din where he reclaims the Darksaber for the Mandalorians and it would be such a powerful moment. So Madison, that's pretty much it for season one. That's kind of crazy. And we've come so far. We've covered every single episode of The Mandalorian here on Bounties and Blasters. And I can't say we will be returning for season two as long as the world doesn't end and Comets don't <laughs> meteor from the sky. We'll be here next year in fall 2020 talking about The Mandalorian once again. And and who knows by that point who will be cast on the show. We don't know what we'll find out at Star Wars Celebration. Again, I will be FaceTiming Madison into the room with me and we will be experiencing it together and probably recording our reactions after that. But I know along the way towards that August date, we will probably here and there have some special episodes and surprise you guys to to kind of sit back down with us and talk through some of the things that are happening in the Mandalorian universe. 
probably shorter episodes because there's not as much to talk about, but who knows what will come out throughout the year. So um, no one's ever truly gone, but we will definitely be back next year. Yes, definitely. I can't wait. So only, uh, what is it? Only eight more months? Eight and a half more months. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying not to count because if you don't <laughs> count, it goes by quicker. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That is very true. Well, Madison, where can our good Bounties and Blasters fans find Doing Talking? You can find all of the episodes on doingtalking.com and also on iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. My channel is Maddie Solo. That's M-A-D-I hyphen solo. And you can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Doing Talking Pod. Doing Talking also has a Patreon. So if you head on over to patreon.com slash doing talking, you can find all kinds of cool extra content there. As for Friends of the Force, your other half of Bounty and, Bounties and Blasters, you can find us at Friends of Force on Twitter and Friends of the Force on Instagram. Consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash Friends of the Force, along with Alderanian Rose, Chris from Kentucky, Michael Condon, Neil Lowry, Real Farm Boy NT. And we are also a part of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network, which aims at promoting positivity in the Star Wars fandom. So for all of you out there who have been us, been with us since the very first episode of Bounties and Blasters, we sincerely thank you for tuning in this season. And we were not going anywhere. You will see us again, like I said, next year and throughout all of 2020. So get excited when you see that episode drop right into your feed. Make sure you're subscribed to both Doing Talking and Friends of the Forest because we're going to be putting a lot of other non-Mandalorian content out there throughout the year. And we both, I think we have pretty good podcasts. Madison, I would say so. I think we're pretty, pretty great people. That sounds a oh, little yeah. conceited when I say it, but you know what? <laughs> We're we awesome. We We're the hard. best. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for this episode for Chapter 8, Redemption. And Madison, like we've always said up until here, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way.